Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although we'll hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Dave Page at Washington County's R.H. Stafford Library. Dave Page is one of the foremost scholars writing today on the life and legacy of St. Paul native F. Scott Fitzgerald. Among other credits, Page edited the Thought Book of F. Scott Fitzgerald, the Future Literary Star's Boyhood Journal. Fitzgerald mined Minnesota characters and episodes from his Thought Book when crafting a backdrop for his seminal The Great Gatsby and in other stories. Page also co-edited the St. Paul Stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald in 2004. His latest research endeavor, F. Scott Fitzgerald in Minnesota, The Writer and His Friends at Home, is a house-by-house guide to Summit Avenue and other areas of St. Paul that Fitzgerald knew and loved. In this impressive opus, which weighs in at nearly two pounds, Page's anecdotes are accompanied by hundreds of historical and contemporary photographs and nearly 700 footnotes. Page has taught English and Fitzgerald courses at Inver Hills Community College and currently serves on the board of the nonprofit organization Fitzgerald and St. Paul. Page makes use of slides in his club book discussion, which can be found at clubbook.org slash podcasts. And now, Dave Page. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so they've got Pulitzer Prize winners and New York Times bestsellers and me. So I'm, I hope that I, I do them justice. Um, I, I'm on the board of Fitzgerald and St. Paul. We're a nonprofit. Our ultimate goal is to get a museum here in St. Paul. Probably not going to happen, but we're going to try. Um, this book is a fundraiser for them. Um, so I, I don't get any of the money, and I just say that just in case that matters to you. So if you buy a copy of the book, the, the money actually will go to um, Fitzgerald and St. Paul to do our programming. And so we have a lot of different programming. You can look us up online as well. Um, it's, uh, the book is like an architectural, biographical, historical romp through the St. Paul of Fitzgerald and his friends is, is you know, basically what it is. And um, tonight I want to talk about the places that didn't make it, that aren't there anymore. But the reason for that had to do with a phone, uh, an email. And so one of my colleagues, who's just a dogged researcher, emails me and she said, who is Kitty Milbank? And I go, oh, Kitty Milbank? I don't know any Kitty Milbank. Well, she wrote a memoir and she talks all about her time with F. Scott Fitzgerald. And I'm going like, hmm. 
And so I don't think it's the Kitty from Buffalo because they weren't old enough. And I don't think it's Kitty Orgway. And so it had to be Kitty Schultz. And, um, and so I started doing some research. And um, so she's married to Jeremiah Bill Milbank. And I, you know, I go online, and there's all sorts of things like ancestry and stuff. And I found out that Jeremiah Milbank was married to Margaret Schultz, Kitty's sister. And so I'm going like, OK, here's a interesting thing. <laughs> um, and I'm going to dig it up. And that's kind of you know, how this whole talk got started. And so my fat thumbs, and i got to aim it at the right place. And I have to turn it on. So um, the Schultzes were one of the families, of course, in The Great Gatsby, at the end of The Great Gatsby. Um, you know, he's in the Chicago train station saying, are you going to the Hersey's, um, the Schultzes, and the Ordways? So the Schultzes lived at 226 Summit. It was built by Amherst Wilder of you know, the Wilder Foundation, you know that. And it was um, designed by William Wilcox and Clarence Johnston. They designed many, many of the big mansions up on Summit Avenue. And it was torn down in 1959. And it was a gorgeous, gorgeous house. It's where the chancery is now for the St. Paul Cathedral. Um, and the house next door was another one of Fitzgerald's friends. And then the next house is the James Day Hill House. So those two lots. Um, you know, the, the big houses on both those lots were torn down. And that's where the Schultzes lived. Um, and um, as I said, are you going to the Ordways, the Herseys, and the Schultzes? He spelled it wrong in The Great Gatsby. Fitzgerald was a terrible speller. But, you know, to be fair to him, if you had a friend by the name of Schultz, you know, you'd probably spell it, you know, like the, how he spelled it. But it was really spelled um, S-C-H-U-L-Z-E with with no uh, T in there. And so he just kind of spelled it wrong. And he, he talked about Kitty in his thought book and said that he sat with one of his girlfriends by the name of Violet Stockton in the backyard here. This is the backyard. This is the Selby Avenue trolley. So he said he you know, sat in the backyard of the Schultz house talking to his girlfriend, Violet Stockton, da da da. And you know, this is you know, who he ran around with. You know, these were the people. Um, Theodore Schultz was a wholesale shoe person. He had a shoe factory in St. Paul, the largest in what they called the Northwest. So the Midwest did not really come into existence until practically after Fitzgerald left St. Paul. And so we, you know, St. Paul was the Northwest, and so it was the largest shoe factory in the Northwest. Um, here's a picture of Kitty. The arrow points toward her. Um, in one of Fitzgerald's plays, he wrote all these juvenile plays when he was a kid, and then he would get the rich neighborhood kids to be in them, his friends. And um, of course, he would get publicity because these are the kids of the, you know, the wealthy families in the neighborhood. There he is. Doesn't he look cool? I mean, I tell you, I mean, look, all these other, you know, all the other guys are kind of, and he's just cool. I mean, he is just cool. Um, you know, there he is, hand in his pocket. There we go. Um, here's another picture of Kitty raising money in St. Paul for father, fatherless French children. Now, she comes of age, and, and at that time, girls came out, you know, and so she comes of age during World War I. And basically, the newspapers are going to run a lot of photos of you 
until you, I hate to say this, until you snag a guy. And then, you know, you're not in the paper really much to, you know. And so um, I just, as I was doing research, that's the pattern. You know, like she's in the paper, you know, like frequently, and then she gets married and you don't see her too much anymore. And that happened with all the young women. Um, so here's Kitty in, um, she's here, she's in, um, this is a picture of her in Palm Beach. Here's another picture of her in Palm Beach. Here's a picture of her in New York at the races. So I mean, she's in the paper, you know, quite a bit. Um, and here's the same picture, but a different, it's, it's an article that mentions Jeremiah Milbank. You can't see it here, but it's right there. Jeremiah Milbank. He, his father, um, um, by the name of, uh, uh, his grandfather, by the name of Jeremiah. So he wasn't junior because his father's name was Joseph. So his grandfather, Jeremiah, invested in condensed milk. And he was Borden's. Made a gazillion dollars, and he was a banker. And then he also invested in the Chicago St. Excuse me, Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railroad, which is the railroad that Fitzgerald mentions in The Great Gatsby. So I don't know if this is how the Schultzes and the Milbanks kind of connected was through the railroad, but of course, rich people are rich together. And so the, the fact that you know, she would have met him is not that surprising. I'm talking about Margaret, her sister, okay? But Jeremiah starts this Red Cross um, hospital for um, disabled people. Now, he's very conservative, but that makes sense, right? You know, you want to give them a helping hand so that they can actually, you know, learn to do something that will give them a paycheck. And this is what he did. And um, Kitty and her other sister started working at the hospital that Jeremiah Milbank funded. And I'm sure it's because he was married to their sister, Margaret. Okay? And then... Margaret dies. And we explain, you know, what happens. Then he marries Kitty. So he marries his sister-in-law. Now, Jeremiah Milbank then, um, and by the way, this is great. In the Honolulu Star Bulletin from Hawaii, the marriage is announced. Of course, it's announced in newspapers all over the United States. This is Milbank, by the way. He is called one of the most unknown rich families in the United States. And believe me, the Milbanks are still there influencing your lives because they have these foundations that are out there, like the Heritage Foundation. I mean, you know, they're still in influencing your lives. So anyway, the Milbanks have a lot of money. But look at this. Fitzgerald wasn't the only one who misspelled the name, which I think is really interesting. So why Hawaii? Because her aunt lived there. And so, of course, it's announced in the Hawaii, Hawaii newspapers because the Milbanks are, you know, they have money everywhere, no matter where they go, of course. So Jeremiah Milbank, after he marries Kitty, um, in around, he marries her in 1919, he buys one of these and then he buys the other one and hires an architect to hook him up. This is in New York City, 
So 48 by 100 in New York City. This is how much money the Milbanks had. I mean, just an amazing amount of money. Um, and the house eventually <laughs> became owned by Bob Guccione of Penthouse Magazine. You can imagine Jeremiah Milbank just turning over in his grave. Um, and so this is how Kitty lived after she married her sister's husband. Now, here's something really interesting. So I showed you the picture of Kitty and young F. Scott Fitzgerald's play. I wonder if she would have done this, being Shazerazad in a fundraiser. By the way, Kermes is a fundraiser. It's a word that's dropped out of usage today. It's kind of an interesting word. So she was in this fundraiser as Shazerazad with Mrs. Forbes. I couldn't quite find out exactly, but I'm assuming it's the Forbes. Um, and I'm wondering if, if, if being in Fitzgerald's plays gave her the um, confidence to do this. And so, um, yeah, interesting, interesting kind of small connection. So, here's where it all started. My friend bought this online. It's by Kitty Milbank. I put the Schultz in there. It's called Miscellanea. And this is her memoir. Um, and every time I went to a dance with Scott, this is Scott Fitzgerald. She wrote a chapter about Scott Fitzgerald. Um, the procedure was the same. Immediately upon arrival, Scott deserted me and spent the evening in the stag line uh, and gazing off into space and never dancing, leaving me to my own devices. It, it's kind of odd because if I, because I've interviewed, so I, I've actually interviewed some of his friends, you know, many years ago, and, and they said he danced all the time. So I don't know who to believe, you know, right? So, but the interesting thing to me is, so this woman who marries into one of the wealthiest families in the United States still wants to connect herself to F. Scott Fitzgerald. I mean, this is important to her. Um, and he asked me to all these dances. Um, I've only read her name in his journal like twice, but she's acting like they were to, you know, all the time together. But that's fine, you know, are fine, fine. Um, and I, she says, I wonder if this was, so he was just standing there observing, and I wonder if this was the writer in him. I, I can't believe that all he did was stand and observe, but that's okay. Our paths separated when I went off to school in New York City, um, and we never saw each other again, but they almost came really close. So when Fitzgerald married Zelda, he came back in August 1921 to St. Paul. And this is in the Society in the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Cordino Severance of Cedarhurst will entertain at a luncheon in honor of Mr. and Mrs. Jeremiah Milbank um, and da da da, they, the, the home of Theodore Schultz on Summit, blah, blah, blah. So they just missed each other. And I don't know if they would have hooked up at this point. I, I mean, just, you know, just for lunch or whatever. Um, but they might have, but of course they missed each other by a couple months here. Um, I don't know if you know Cedarhurst, it's just down the road here. Um, so this is where the luncheon was held, designed by Cass Gilbert um, and on the National Register. 
and I, and I went, oh my God, there's a real tangential connection to F. Scott Fitzgerald at Cedars. This is the kind of stuff I make up, you know what I mean? You know? Um, I mean, you know what I mean, yeah. She was at lunch there, she was a girlfriend, ooh, big deal, right? But to me, it's a big deal. Um, here's another home that there are no pictures of that I can find. On Virginia Avenue, just right next door to Summit, there was a twin home built by one of Fitzgerald's friends um, who was a, um, a drug manufacturer here in St. Paul. And um, the, let's see, I gotta get it right here. <laughs> Charles Noyes had a drug company here in St. Paul. So he built this twin home, and then Fitzgerald's friend Joe McKibben lived in it. And Joe and Charles's son Larry went to Hill School together, and then um, on to Princeton, okay? And so Joe McKibben, um, was a little bit older, and he came to, this is literally the picture of the room. This is Norris Jackson, who was Fitzgerald's good friend. This is his room at Princeton. Fitzgerald was in Jackson's room at Princeton when Joe comes in the room, and, um, and he says, let's go for a walk. So um, several of them go for a walk. And this is according to Norris Jackson, whom I interviewed. He was one of Fitzgerald's friends who was still alive when I was doing these early interviews. And um, we walked through the campus and along a canal, a nice place to walk, Jackson said. Fitzgerald was acting a little bit odd. <laughs> Not a surprise. A day or two later, Fitzgerald bursts into Norris Jackson's room and says, do you know who we were with last Sunday? And Norris says, of course, it was Joe McKibben. You know, he's our friend, Joe. And he said, yes, yes, but the senior with him. And Jackson said, yeah, I, I know him. And Fitzgerald said, he's the captain of the football team, and I acted just like a damn fool. And of course, it was really important for him to people like him, people to like, for, it was important to Scott for people to like him, and he had acted like a fool in front of one of the most important people um, at Princeton, who was um, Hobart Armory Hare Baker. And if you know anything about hockey, um, it's the Hobie Baker Award, not the Heisman Trophy that's given to the best hockey player, because Hobie Baker was just an incredible athlete, period. And so he was captain of the Princeton football team. You know, everything rested on his shoulders. He was, you know, the hockey player, everything, everything. And so Fitzgerald puts him in this side of paradise as Allenby, but even more important, he names the hero in his story, Armory. Now, would this have all happened had Joe McKibben, who lives in one of the houses that was torn down in Summit Avenue, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. Fitzgerald had no imagination whatsoever. <laughs> and I'm not saying that in a negative way. Everything in his stories, I can document practically. The ones that have to do with St. Paul. He took everything. So had he not met Allen B., I'm not sure if this whole thing about Allen B., who liked to sing, and was the captain of the team. I'm not sure if that would have been in the novel had he not spent that Sunday afternoon because of Joe McKibben, okay? Now, 
the story kind of continues interestingly, um, and I gotta get the dates right here. Um, McKibben joins the armed services just like everybody else did during World War I, and in 1923 he meets Dorothy Skerritt, who's a graduate of Smith College. He meets her, of course, where else? In Delwood, you know. Um, and she came from a well-to-do Kansas City family. And she was visiting friends up here in Delwood. And they become engaged, but they break their engagement, long engagement. They break their engagement in 1925 when she discovers she has TB and she says she won't marry him. So she goes to Santa Fe for the cure and she gets cured. And in 1927, they get married. And then ironically, he dies of Hodgkin's disease. So he dies, not her. She's left with a young child. She really likes Santa Fe, so she goes back down to Santa Fe. And she gets, and by the way, he, he got a job, of course, at the family firm. This is where the money comes from. McKibben, Driscoll, and Dorsey Furriers. This is not, this building is still there. It's right across from CHS you know, Field, so you won't miss it if you go to a Saints game. Um, and, but, so she returns to Santa Fe and gets hired by Robert Oppenheimer and she is called the gatekeeper to Los Alamos. There's a biography about her and this is Joe McKibben's wife. So really interesting. Coincidentally, Joe's sister Allison, who was 11 years older, um, married Charles Bigelow when she was 29, so she became, she was the same age, but she became stepmother to one of Fitzgerald's really good friends by the name of Alita Bigelow. And here's Alita Bigelow at the dancing class. This is the famous dancing class picture. There's Fitzgerald, he was pretty short. All these people are like all the Summit Avenue gentry. And so there's Alita at Romaley Hall, which has been torn down um, on Grand Avenue. Um, the, this is Professor Baker, and he was also very short, very plump, but light on his feet, remembered Alita. Um, dancing with Professor Baker was a special treat for me. I love to dance. And he was, though heavy, a most graceful dancer. He held us most properly quite far away. Um, of course, he had to do that because of his stomach. <laughs> <laughs> now, here we go. She remembered that all the girls wanted to dance with Scott. So this is where I'm saying, you know, yeah, it doesn't really matter, but that's fine. Um, Professor Baker was a bartender I mean, he didn't make you know, his living teaching rich kids how to dance. He was a bartender at the White Bear Lake Yacht Club, which burned down in 1937. And of course, um, this one, I mean, there's a new one there, but um, this was the second yacht club. This is where Fitzgerald, Zelda, Scotty, and the nurse lived um, in 1922. But Fitzgerald was already familiar with the yacht club because he was there all the time. It was brand new when they hosted a performance of one of the plays I just showed you the picture of and um, called, um, he did Coward There, 
um, to raise money for the Baby Welfare League, which was a Catholic um, social organization. And then the following year, they hosted Assorted Spirits, which was a play about drinking and ghosts. Assorted Spirits, get it? So during the play, the lights go out. And people in first in the audience think it's part of the play, but it's not. They blew a fuse. And then people start to get nervous. And I mean, you know, you're sitting in a pitch black room. And so Fitzgerald jumps up on the stage and calms them down. And the next day in the newspaper, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald, hero, blah, blah, blah. Um, so he, he knew all about the Yacht Club before he, um, he moved there with Zelda in 1922. Now, Supposedly he was kicked out of the Yacht Club. Supposedly he was kicked out of everywhere. I think a lot of those stories are bogus, but you know, once again, I wasn't there, I don't know. But the thing that makes me feel a lot of them are bogus is because they're all different. So in one of the stories, he supposedly did one of those Scottish sword dances with uh, golf clubs out on the, you know, golf. And I'm thinking like, you would get kicked out for that? Maybe. Another one of the stories was that Zelda got drunk. I mean, you know, so there's all these different stories about why he got kicked out. Now, maybe he did something to deserve to get kicked out, but, you know, who knows. Another one of the buildings that didn't make it, the most luxurious apartment hotel in the Twin Cities was the Aberdeen, um, pretty much right next to the cathedral, St. Paul Cathedral, on Dayton, between Dayton and Selby. And so here's the Aberdeen right here. Um, it, you know, E.L. Masquerade, the guy who designed the St. Paul Cathedral, um, lived there. John Johnson, governor of Minnesota, lived there um, while he was governor. Um, and so, you know, it was, a, it was a, quite the luxurious hotel. Fitzgerald's mother, Louis, now, apartment hotel, it was like the Commodore. So when you were in between houses, you would stay there. So Louisa McQuillan would stay there when she was in between houses. That's Fitzgerald's grandmother. According to Scott's ledger, his mother also stayed there in September 1908. Um, and, you know, I don't have the hotel's ledger, so I don't know. But um, this is a picture of it. This is another picture of it. It was quite grand, a uh, very, very nice place. Um, it, um, one of Fitzgerald's friends, Marie Hersey, her family was living there when she was born. Um, so here's a picture of Marie from the dance class. It's the youngest one I can find, of course. I don't have any baby pictures of her, but I love this, right? So I don't love that she died, but I mean, she was a lumber baron's daughter. The Herseys opened one of the first sawmills um, with some partners up in Stillwater. So she was a, a lumber baron's daughter, the wife of William Ham Jr. We're talking William Ham of Hams and the childhood sweetheart of F. Scott Fitzgerald. So I'm not saying she was born in the Aberdeen, but she was born when her parents were living at the Aberdeen. So the lumber barons were living there. Scott's mother was living there. I mean, a lot of people think the Fitzgeralds were kind of on the edge because they didn't live in the big houses, but they lived in the same places that all these other people lived. You know, the McQuillans had money, and Fitzgerald was a McQuillan through his mother, so they lived in all the same places. Here's a picture of William and Marie, and of course, 
um, the, the, the plot to kidnap William Ham in uh, 1933 took place in the former home of one of Fitzgerald's friends. I mean, there's just all these connections that go on and on that I, you know, I can't go on too much. But um, so the Aberdeen had kind of a sad ending. Um, it, it fell on hard times during the Depression and basically was empty. And Ruth Munson, um, who was a, uh, a server at the um, uh, Union Depot Cafe, I'm assuming it was in the Union Depot, um, lived just right in a boarding house right next to the cathedral. Here's the cathedral. She was at a bar on University Avenue, which of course is up here, and she left the bar at 12.30 and no one ever saw her again until the next day they found her burned body at the Aberdeen. Um, kind of a Kitty Genovese, you guys remember the Kitty Genovese thing where she screamed and screamed and screamed in the Bronx and nobody, you know, you know, they'd yell out their window and then the guy would come back and finally after three times he killed her. Several people heard her scream, but no one called the police, no one did anything. And they found her burdened body at the Aberdeen and um, it was a huge story. They never found her murderer, ever. And the Aberdeen paid the ultimate penance. They tore it down. Um, and, you know, after that, it, it Bad juju, you know. Um, so there we go. Ironically, once again, here's another interesting connection. Ruth Munson worked at Miller Hospital before she got the job at um, the Union Depot Cafe, and that's where Scotty Fitzgerald was born, at Miller Hospital, which has been torn down. And um, it was still here when I moved um, to the Twin Cities in 1981. I can't remember when they tore it down, like 84 or something. So I have some pictures of it empty. But anyway, um, this is, um, Miller Hospital became part of, I wanna say Fairview. And so in Fairview, United, thank you. So that's, so it's United Hospital in Minneapolis. No, but I mean, United Hospital in Minneapolis has the records up on display. So these are Scotty's birth records. Um, born October 26, six pounds, Dr. Rothrick. Um, and um, the nurses are Miss Dunn, Miss Young, Miss Smith. But we interviewed Clara Kohler, who was a special duty nurse at the hospital. And she said, Scotty was born, fifth floor obstetrics, mothers were kept on the east end, babies in the west end. Zeldin, the baby, each had a private nurse around the clock. Fitzgerald had money. Um, this was not the usual procedures. Mother spent two weeks in the hospital, then maybe a week and a half. She walked down the hall in beautiful negligees. I love that line. I don't know why. Um, it's just always intrigued me when she said that. So here's a picture in the Logansport, Indiana, Pharos Tribune. I mean, this is, this is national news when Zelda has a baby because you know she's married to the famous author of Scott Fitzgerald. So here she is. They're going to spend the summer in England. You know? So this is 
a big deal. It's one of my favorite pictures of Zelda and little Scotty, um, who was, of course, born at the hospital. Um, Zelda's friend, Xander Coleman, here they are out at um, White, excuse me, this picture is taken at the Minicata Club in Minneapolis, but they would play in golf tournaments all over. And Zelda was an avid golfer. She was a much better athlete than her husband. She was just an incredible athlete. But anyway, you know, she and Zandra played golf at White Bear, you know, Minicata, et cetera. And Zandra uh, said in an interview, when Zelda went to the hospital, Scott immediately called me and went down with him while he paced around, waiting while she was in the delivery room. In those days, the husband was allowed to be in the delivery room. This is 1921. And he'd come out and he wrote in his notebook and I'd say, what are you doing? And he, oh, what are you writing? And he'd say, Jesus Christ, help, help. This is Zelda in delivery. <laughs> um, and she goes, why are you doing this? I might use it someday. He was always saying that. Everybody said he was always writing in his notebook. Remember I said he had no imagination. He wrote everything down and then he would use it. And of course, Scotch Ledger credits Zelda with mumbling as she awakened uh, from the anesthesia. Oh God, Gufo. Gufo is what she called him. Um, um, I'm drunk, Mark Twain. Isn't she smart? She has the hiccups. I hope it's beautiful and a fool, a beautiful little fool. And of course he used that line in Great Gatsby. I mean, like I said, everything came from something. Um, this is a visitation convent when it was on Grotto and Fairmount. And um, Molly McQuillan and her family, very, very Catholic. Um, Scott's father came from a Catholic family, probably not he probably was not as um, observant as Molly was, but they both came from very staunch Catholic families. Um, Molly's grandfather, Philip McQuillan, helped found Visitation Convent way back, you know, in the 1850s. And so the McQuillan family, of which Molly is a part, you know, were very hooked into the Catholic hierarchy of St. Paul, as eventually Fitzgerald was because, through his family. And so this is Visitation Convent before it was torn down. It's, you know, like I said, this is the places that didn't make it. Molly would take Scott here to recite to the nuns. Um, I don't think he liked it very well. They would set him up on the table and he would recite poetry and stuff. Um, his mother had a, an advisor, if that's the right word for it, um, who was a nun here. And so she would bring Scott and she would talk to her spiritual advisor here and Scott would play in the garden. And they would have another nun watching over him um, while Molly would talk to another sister at the convent. After Scotty's born, um, Aunt Annabelle. So this is, his sister was named Annabelle after the aunt, but this is Aunt Annabelle, Molly's sister, who never got married. Um, loaded the baby, the nurse, Scott, and his sister Annabelle into her electric car. 
And by the way, her electric car shows up in one of the Basil and Josephine stories at the end. Um, and drives them to visitation for the baptism of Scotty. Zelda does not go. Because, well, she's from the South, and they're, you know, Catholics back then in the South. Uh-uh. Um, and by the way, I'm digressing here a little bit, but Scott's parents didn't come to the wedding, and neither did her parents. So, I mean, um, you know, a, a Southern Baptist marrying a Northern Catholic, you know, boy. Anyway, so Scott's sister, Annabelle, stood in for Zelda. I remember the beautiful christening Annabelle wrote in a 1950 letter with the nuns watching from behind a grill. Oh, oh yeah, no, I'm good. Um, being very, the nurse was very protective of the baby and wouldn't let um, Scott and Zelda touch the baby. Um, they both smoked, they both drank, and so the nurse just was very protective. She would also not let Annabelle touch the baby. <laughs> and so the nurse had to hold the baby while it was being baptized, and so the priest told Annabelle simply to put her hand on the baby, and that would have to do. Um, uh, the visitation convent was torn down in the 1960s. Report, um, there was an attempt to build high-rise apartment buildings there. The neighbors got together to, and said, no way. And the Summit Hill Association was born, you know, because of that. Another one of Fitzgerald's good friends, Richard, I, I got to back up here. So when the baby is born, Zelda's kind of stuck in the house, but she can't do anything because the nurse is there, you know, to take care of the baby. Scott has an office in downtown St. Paul. No one knew where the office was. Um, and not that anyone really cared except me. Uh, <laughs> and so I, it, it was there for anybody to kind of find. It's in the records at Princeton because all many of Fitzgerald's papers ended up at Princeton. So I went out to Princeton and I found some papers that were, and I'm not sure when they were donated, but they were an interview of his good friend Tubby Washington who lived in Summit Terrace, which is where 599 is located, which is on the cover of the book, um, which, you know, where Scott lived, his Tubby lived down, you know, um, in a, another row house, 587. Um, Tubby was a great friend, and he wrote that he was one of the few people who knew where the office was, because Scott didn't want anybody to know because he didn't want to be interrupted, but, but Tubby did. And I had thought it was in the New York Life Building because of a short story that Fitzgerald wrote called John Jackson's Arcady, which is like a quest. Um, I think, yeah, John Jackson's Arcady. Anyway, he wrote in there, Jackson looked out a high window upon the gray little city, the white dripping buildings around Courthouse Square over the way. A few minutes later, he was writing in the telegraph office below. So, oh, by the way, this is the, um, the New York Guardian Eagle, which is now up in Overlook Park on Summit. They saved the eagle when they tore the building down. So, back this way, kind of kitty corner behind the building is Courthouse Square. Okay, 
courthouse square. So if Fitzgerald's office was on the opposite side, he would have been able to see courthouse square. Only three Western Union offices in St. Paul at that time. One of them is in the New York Life Building. Okay, so I was already convinced that the office was in the New York Life Building, but I had no proof. But then I find Tubby's um, interview, and he says that it was indeed in the New York Life Building. And I went, ah, yes, I should have been a detective. So one day, he stopped by to borrow $50 from Scott. But Scott said he couldn't loan him $50. So he loaned him $49. <laughs> On a single sheet of paper in Fitzgerald's papers at Princeton, at the end of his life, when he was desperately broke, he wrote a list of people who owed him money. And on that list is Tubby Washington, who owed him $39. So I don't know if Tubby had paid back 10, or he'd only loaned him 39, but Tubby still owed him $39. Another one of the buildings that didn't make it was the Guardian Life Building. And um, in that building was Kilmarnock Bookstore. So Scott would go to his office um, and write and then he would walk down to Kilmarnock Bookstore to meet with friends and talk about books. And um, Cornelius Van Ness, who was a Harvard graduate, had married Ruth Crosby. Her father was Oliver Crosby, who started American Hoist and Derrick. He built Stonebridge, the largest estate ever in St. Paul. The bridge is still there right off Mississippi River Boulevard, but the house and the property, the house was torn down and the property was subdivided. I should have put Stonebridge in here. It fits. Oh, I forgot, sorry, I don't have a picture of it. Um, look it up online. It's just this amazing estate built by Oliver Crosby whose daughter marries Van Ness, and so Van Ness moves to St. Paul with her and they open a bookstore, right? And Van Ness hired one of Fitzgerald's friends by the name of Thomas Boyd to be the store's manager. Boyd was, like everybody else, a World War I vet, and so the federal government would pay his salary. So Van Ness hired him. And supposedly Boyd was related to the Scottish Earl of Kilmarnock, and so that's where they got Kilmarnock books. Now Fitzgerald would go there, he would meet with Joseph Hergesheimer, he would meet with all these other people that were coming through town or lived in town, like Charles Flandreau Macomb, who was um, an amazing writer from St. Paul, but he had money, so he never pushed himself like Fitzgerald did. Um, I mean, he wrote, but he just, you know, he would write his books, they would get published, and he would go off on treks. I mean, he wouldn't try to get you know, self-promotion. He didn't need the money, and, and of course, Scott promoted himself. Scott also promoted his friends. And so he got Peggy Boyd's first book published, and they called her Woodward Boyd. Um, I don't know if they wanted people to think that she was a he or, but anyway, they didn't use her real name. So this is, 
Thomas Boyd's wife. And here is Thomas Boyd with Sinclair Lewis, um, who, of course, you know, would stop by the bookshop book as well, Kilmarnock Books, 84 East 4th Street. Um, of course, the building was torn down. And, the, and Fitzgerald actually met Lewis for the first time out at the White Bear Yacht Club when Fitzgerald was living there. Um, and interestingly enough, one, um, oh, um, um, Norris Jackson happened to be out visiting Fitzgerald when the phone rang and Fitzgerald said, oh, damn, or hell, or something like that. And, and Norris said, what? And he said, oh, Sinclair Lewis is coming out here. Now, remember, he just won the Nobel Prize, you know? And, um, you know, oh, he's, you know, Sinclair Lewis is coming out here. I have to find some gin. And, you know, so you hear all these stories about Fitzgerald drinking, but yet, supposedly, he had to find some gin. Now, this is prohibition, but I'm sure it probably wasn't too hard to find gin out at the White Bear Yacht Club. Oh. The Boyds lived at the um, Portella Apartments at 147 Summit. Now, when, when Summit gets to the cathedral, it, it takes a right past those apartment buildings, and the, there's the park with the Civil War statue. That park used to be full of homes and apartment buildings, and the Boyds lived in one of the apartments on Summit Avenue as it went, as it took a sharp right there at the cathedral and went down. And they lived at one of the apartment buildings that's since been torn down, called the Portella Apartments. So here's Peggy again, very lovely young woman. And here's Thomas Alexander Boyd. She actually got him his job here in St. Paul, more or less and then convinced him to um, apply to be a books editor at, um, at the St. Paul Daily News, and he got the job. And so that's how he met Fitzgerald. So I mean, you know, there was all these books people getting together. Boy, so she got her novel published because of Scott, and then Scott helped him get his first novel published in 1923, and it was a critical success. Um, and he quit his job as a bookstore manager, and then things kind of fell apart, and, and, and they got divorced. Now, um, this is going to sound a, a little weird, maybe, but um, th there's an interesting thing for me here. Um, in Fitzgerald's short stories, he never called it Summit Avenue. He called it Crest Avenue. And once again, I just thought... Oh, yeah, Summit, Crest, I mean, duh, right? Next door to the Boyds, who lived in the Portola, Portola apartments, the next door apartments are called? Crest. And I'm thinking, of course, <laughs> they were called the Summit Crest Apartments. Oh. And I'm just guessing that's where he got the name Crest for Summit Avenue in all the short stories. Because um, once again, he just didn't make stuff up. He was an observer, and he wrote things down. Um, the buildings, uh, the apartment buildings that I'm talking about are no longer there. Um, they were torn down in the 1970s, uh, probably to make way for the park. 
um, I'm guessing, and so they're no longer there. Um, so this is a um, kind of a quickie um, tour of about one tenth of the book. There's 180 different um, addresses in the book. Um, so these are the ones that didn't make it. Now I'm kind of regretting I didn't put in Stonebridge, but that's okay. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Dave Page and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Dave Page first became interested in Fitzgerald. You know, I was an English major, which kind of explains you know, 20% of it. Um, but I, I moved up to the Twin Cities in 1981 to get for a teaching job. And uh, one of the first places I went, because it was the only place I knew, was 599 Summit. And so I'm not sure how long I'd lived here. And I went to 599 Summit and I went, oh my, I mean, I'd never been to Summit Avenue. And I just thought, this is just amazing and I completely bought into Fitzgerald's oh I'm the poor boy on the outside looking in you know the you know with my no oh it actually wasn't Fitzgerald who said that it was one of the critics who said he was like you know the the beggar with his nose pressed up you know against you know the party who wondering who paid for the music well Fitzgerald paid for the music I mean and and his family came from wealth um, and so I got sucked into that whole thing, but at the same time, I always in the back of my head, you know, I'm going like, 599 Summit is pretty nice. <laughs> you know, it, it, I know it's not the big houses, but it's nice. Um, and I mean, you haven't seen it since it's been refurbished. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very, very nice place. And so then I started, you know, interviewing more people, and I, I stopped kind of buying that mythology, but it's, it's, it's a mythology that many, many, many people have, that, you know, I worked my way up, you know, and it was all not, you know, not really, but um, so, so Hemingway did the same thing, you know, they had plenty of money. I mean, look at what he did, right? You know, and, and, you know, Scott came from a family, same thing, that had plenty of money. Um, but, you know, so I did more research, and then I realized, yeah, you know, he was not quite at the pinnacle of Summit Avenue Wealth, but, you know, he was close enough. Um, and then what I realized was his parents weren't really accepted by the Summit Avenue wealth. His father lost his job, you know, and didn't work. He didn't have to work, but you, you, you were looked down upon. I mean, guys worked until they died. Um, and he was kind of retired. People didn't like that. And Molly was weird. Um, 
everybody said, everybody said she was a little weird. So Scott has these parents that he's somewhat ashamed of. They do not kind of associate with um, the other, the parents of his friends. So like when you look through the society pages, he and Annabelle are at every party. I only saw one, maybe two mentions of Edward and Molly. And I mean, Scott and Annabelle, constant. They're at every party. So they had the entree through the McQuillans. But I, 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 know he, I know that he had the honest feeling of feeling as an outsider because of the way his parents probably were treated. This question is what three novels Paige would suggest picking up for first-time Fitzgerald readers. Well, I mean, I love Gatsby. I mean, you know, um, and I'm not saying this because I edited it, but the St. Paul stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald, which I did help edit and is still in print. Are you guys selling that back there? No. Um, um, you can still, I mean, you can get it. It's the St. Paul stories. It's still in print, published by the Minnesota Historical Society. I mean, it has, it, it has some of the greatest stories in it because they're St. Paul locations like Winter Dreams and um, the Ice Palace and the Basil and the Basil stories. I mean, so it's a fun place to start because you're gonna recognize everything. If you're, are you from St. Paul? I am. Okay, yeah, you know, so you hear, um, um, I wanna say seven corners, is it, or is it five corners? Seven. seven, okay. You know, you read about Seven Corners in the story, you go, oh yeah, okay, I know where that is. Um, or the University Club, or Crest Avenue. And so those are fun. And then the more I read his first novel, the more I like it, the, This Side of Paradise. It's just, it's, it's not very well organized. He took a bunch of short stories, a bunch of poetries, a bunch of plays that he wrote, and he just crammed them all together because he wanted to get a novel because Zelda had broken up with him and he knew that if he didn't get some money fast. And the other, th it was not the novel. I know I'm digressing from your question. It was not the novel that got him the money. He did not get any money from Scribner's. He started selling short stories, and then because you started because of the Scribner's novel, short stories started selling. Then the movies pay for the short stories. Twenty five hundred dollars he's getting for the rights to one short story from Hollywood. This is at a time when the average American is making six hundred a year, and he's getting checks for twenty five hundred dollars minus ten percent for his agent, but. Um, so, you know, minus 250, so he's getting $2,250. This audience member asks about Fitzgerald's view on writing for the movies versus writing novels and short stories. A lot of the writers would go to Hollywood and take the money and then kind of act as though they were above it. Fitzgerald needed it. So he took Hollywood very, very seriously, but he could not play with others. He just couldn't do it. And, and that's how Hollywood works. Um, you know, here I am like, 
I know. <laughs> no, I don't know. But, you know, I've read as much as you have, and it's a, you know, it's a, he was, he was used to working by himself. Maybe, you know, his editor, Max Perkins, would have a little bit of a say. And Zelda, certainly, you know, would have a, would have a say. But he gets out to Hollywood, and it's just a factory. You know, he's sitting in a room with a bunch of other people churning out scripts. I mean, he just, he couldn't do it. Um, but he tried. I mean, because he, 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 at that point, he really needed the money. So, I mean, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. He worked, for example, on Gone with the Wind. So if you like the movie Gone with the Wind, part of the reason you like the movie is because of Fitzgerald. Oh, yeah. Because he told them that they were mocking um, Margaret Mitchell. And he said, she sucks as a writer, but she doesn't deserve to be mocked. And so he fixed the script, but that's how it worked, right? You know, you give this person the script, then this person the script, then this person the script, this person the script, etc. Did anybody see Z, the Amazon Prime, about Zelda? Oh, no one? It's interesting, but it, it kills me because they always leave out St. Paul. Always. And I actually want to write, I've got one more book I want to write about Fitzgerald, and that's the book I want to write, is that, it, you know, St. Paul is just neglected. He, he's, um, I forgot to mention, I'm glad I thought about this, he started planning Great Gatsby at the White Bear Yacht Club. Um, and, it, I mean, St. Paul is hugely important to Fitzgerald and his writing. But everybody ignores it. So in Z, they have him writing this side of paradise in New York City, you know, walking down Fifth Avenue and turning it into Scribner's. You know, that's not what happened. He wrote it at 599 Summit. He walked down Summit Avenue to the home of his friend Tom Daniels, who is Archer Daniels Midland, um, of course. He walks down to the home of his friend Tom Daniels and says, Tom, I know you spent a lot of time in New York City. Would you deliver my um, manuscript to Scribner's? And Tom says, sure. So it's hand-delivered to Scribner's by Tom Daniels of Archer Daniels in Midland, and that's, you know, and it, it got accepted. That's the real story. But they don't want to put St. Paul in there. They just don't want to. It's not New York and it's not Los Angeles. I, apparently, <laughs> and it just it drives it drives me crazy, especially as someone who is from flyover country. It just it just drives me crazy. This next question is about the photography that appears in Dave Page's most recent book. I, I there's like 35 years of my research in here, and I'm not trying to deflect your question. So Jeff has been taking pictures of the neighborhood for a long time. Not for 35 years, probably not even 10 years, but he's been taking pictures like, you know, four, five, six years of the neighborhood. So some of those pictures are, you know, almost, I don't want to say archival, that makes them sound older, but I mean, he had this huge archive of photographs of the neighborhood. And so, you know, I go, there's 180 homes. I, 
there were darn few that he didn't have pictures of, honestly. So he just, he just does this because. Oh, he's a photographer. I'm sorry, he's a photographer, and he and he yeah, um, he just liked the neighborhood. And so he came to our group and said, um, you know, is there any chance that, you know, I can take some photographs? And then the other, the other way this book came about, actually, the University of Minnesota, as in my introduction she mentioned, had hired me to do Fitzgerald's thought book. It had never been transcribed. And I said, oh my God, you know, we can get pictures of all the homes. We can get pictures of all the people. I mean, we can just do this amazing thing, da 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 And they go, yeah, sounds great. They didn't use any of it. And I'm, I, and so I was complaining to Stu Wilson, who is the president of Fitzgerald in St. Paul. I said, God, you know, this just still irritates me, as you can tell. <laughs> um, and he said, we'll do it. And I said, what? And he goes, well, we'll publish the book because we, that's our mission is to do things like this. And, um, you know, we'll do it as a fundraiser and, you know, we're going to take the royalties. And, and I said, yeah, that's fine. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to get published. I mean, if any of you want to be writers, you know, so it, you know, this is fun for me because I get to do stuff like this. Um, and I do, I enjoy doing this. The last question of the night comes from an audience member asking about Fitzgerald's thought book that Dave Page edited. He kept, he kept this thing called the ledger later in his life. And I mean, so if you're like 12 years old, you could start writing a diary and make your entire life up. And then later someone finds it, they don't know. I mean, you could make yourself to be whatever you wanted. And so Fitzgerald realized probably about 19 or 20 when he had this, you know, when the book was going about to be published, that he could kind of help create what his, what people would think of him in the future. And so he started keeping this thing called um, the, the ledger. But he had earlier kept when he was like, 12 and 13, he'd started it but stopped it. So he only managed to do it for like six months. So there's only something like 28 pages that I worked on. And then he did his whole life later, okay? Um, so there's these 28 pages and seven of them are about Violet Stockton, this, you know, this first love of his life. And nobody knew who she was. And, it's in the book, though. I finally tracked her down. I mean, I didn't track her down, but I tracked down who she was. Nobody else knew. They all thought she was from Atlanta. She was from New Jersey. Um, that was one of my more proud moments when I figured out who I know. I know you're all thinking, like, this guy is sick. Yes, yes, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, really, it was a thrill for me to find out who Violet Stockton was because she was such a, a huge part, obviously, of his life since, a, you know, like a fourth of this thing he started was about her. So 
Oh, and then in 1940, the year he died, he wrote a list of, I think he called them inspirations or something like that. Violet was on the list. She was on the list. I think that's why he went to Princeton, because she lived in Trenton, and her family owned Princeton. The Stocktons owned Princeton, and they gave the land where the university is, and her family had a house there at Princeton. She was living in Trenton, though, and the house is now a tour home in Princeton. That's the Stocktons, of course. You know, just like Tom Daniels is Archer Daniels Midland. I mean, and Ordway is 3M. I mean, all these people in his life, and you know, Kitty Schultz married Milbank, of course. And his friend um, Lou Ordway married Josephine Green, whose father owned Nabisco, of course. I mean, this is just, that's what this book is just, all of this money. So anyway, thank you very much. That wraps up our Washington County Library RH Stafford event with Dave Page. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with David Housewright at Anoka County's Rum River Library. Minnesota boasts its fair share of thriller novelists, but few are as prolific as David Housewright. What the Dead Leave Behind, the latest in this 14 installment Rushmore McKenzie series, follows Mac hot on the trail of a major conspiracy centered around an unsolved murder in New Brighton. It hit shelves in June. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.